Hey guys, so I'm going to start today's episode with a little news about the podcast. Sadly, last week was my last week as co-host due to some changes at work. You know how it is, assignments and secrecy, if I tell you I'd have to kill you kind of thing. Anyway, we have Chris covering today with Susan, and they'll be talking about critical incidents on a more in-depth level than last episode. We hope you enjoy episode 21 of Fight in Progress. Thanks, guys. Thank you to Universal MMA and Fitness for sponsoring today's episode. You can find their info in the description below. Good morning and welcome to Fight in Progress. You're not ace. I'm not Who ace. Who are you? <laughs> we have a new face in the studio. Chris well, is back really. in the room. He's not really a new face. He's actually an old face. And I mean that in every sense of the word old. But many of you will recognize his voice because he has been with us before and now will be with us weekly until I get rid of him, figure out a way to run him off. That's true. Um, and that might mean today's his only day here as the co-host. At we will Promise. see how I do. Yeah. And of course, I have to start out with Roll Tide. We have a big football game tonight. Yes, we do. And you will be screaming Roll Tide. And the only reason I'll scream Roll Tide is because you're going to feed me. <laughs> I swear. You know, all cops are like, you got to feed them to get anything out of them. I had New Year's food, and I didn't even know what New Year's food was. Yeah, I had to educate this poor child about Southern New Year's Day. He had never heard of black-eyed peas and collards for for dollars and that kind of stuff. I, I just don't understand. Apparently, he's lived a bit, very sheltered life, is all I can say, and he needs me to educate him. Big city boy. Yep, and you know, our friend Don is all upset because you're getting fed again. Don is our friend over in yeah. Louisiana. He has been invited how many times now? I told he had forty. He had thirty six hours notice yesterday, and I don't think that he's here. All he had to do is be here by six o'clock tonight. Maybe he'll still show up. No, he we'll texted see. me this morning. He is not on his way, so that's on him. But he always complains and gives me a hard time. So, and I'm actually cooking his wife's jambalaya recipe. So that's on him. Is it bad that I don't even know what jambalaya is? I'm not surprised you don't know what jambalaya. I got to take <laughs> you on a tour of the South. We'll go through Cajun country. We'll go through the Low Country in South Carolina, where I bet you've never heard of Gullah. You know what Gullah is? No. It's a Low Country language. It's actually a language of people many, 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 many years ago. And uh, I had a good friend in college, a sorority sister, and her. Name was Alice, but her name in Gullah was Tuta, which I think meant baby sister or something like that. But anyway, so see, you can learn all kinds of things on this podcast. You realize there's people out there that say that ketchup is spicy to me. So this isn't going to be. Nuts. This isn't going to be spicy tonight, is it? No, no, okay. it can be. There's a Creole jambalaya. I don't, I don't do spicy. Sorry, Mm-mm. no. Okay. This, this will be bland, and a lot of people in true. The true French Cajuns probably wouldn't eat it because it's not spicy enough for them. And there you go. Yep. So, and actually, we may be going to Louisiana. Um, got a call this morning about a department that wants some additional peer support people trained. Uh, I'm going to meet Don. And you'll get to meet Don. Yep. How about that? But anyway, you know, um, Chris and I were talking, and we've had some guest on here talking about critical incidents and one of the things that i never want law enforcement to think is that the only critical incident in law enforcement is a shooting or a line of duty death or an officer injured in the line of duty and i think too many times 
that's what people think about. Right. Because when you hear people talk about trauma, the first thing they think of is you've been shot, you've been injured, you've shot and killed somebody, that kind of thing. And so I think it's important that we talk about, you know, we've talked about the garbage can in here before. We will continue to talk about it because I think that is something that um, really resonates with law enforcement officers. And they have to understand that there's cumulative stress the day-to-day that can lead to a critical incident reaction, but there are also a lot of other critical incidents. And you've been in law enforcement how long now? Almost 18 years. So you've probably had some critical incidents, maybe one or two. I know you, there, you don't there's do a, a lot few of in there. You don't, you don't work hard at no. all. Nope. So that's why I really thought it might be a good topic for us today. I agree. So what do you want to talk about? So the first one that I can remember was back in 2004, and it was a murder-suicide type deal, and there was five officers involved. And what I remember most about it, that actual scene, Mm -hmm. if I knew how to draw, I could draw that scene today, and that was 16 years ago. Wow. Just because it's just stuck. That's how brutal of a scene it was. Sure. I remember they took the five of us in opened up, it was in an apartment complex and they opened up a vacant apartment and put the five of us in this apartment, just the five people, five officers that were involved. And then we went back to, after we briefed the uh, detectives that were coming out on what, what had occurred, they took us back to the station and performed a critical incident debrief where they brought in the dispatcher and they brought in the Mm -hmm. critical incident debrief. So that happened within roughly two hours. Okay. So not my philosophy. That's was my next question. What is your philosophy on that? Um, you know, the, the gods of the peer support program and SISM and whatever you want to call it. Um, say the rule is 72 hours. I say that's a guideline because I've known of situations where, they have held fast. It's got to be done in 72 hours. But an officer that was injured in the event and another officer that actually shot and killed the bad guy were not, neither one was available within that 72 hours. And they did it anyway. And you go, what's the point? Because those two never got debriefed in those situations. Okay. So the main two people, so you kind of have to look at the circumstances, who's available have they, I personally prefer they go home, they see their families, they sleep some, they get something to eat. You know, it's kind of where Maslow's hierarchy of needs comes in. Meet ba- people's basic needs. Nothing's really going to change. Um, and I know there are some officers, and I do get tickled, especially at SWAT teams, that will go, I want to give you my statement immediately. Okay, that's fine. But here's the problem. There's something called critical incident amnesia. And I remember teaching this one time to some SWAT teams, and I remember one of the SWAT guys looking at me and going, oh, I was in a shooting. I remember everything. And I looked at him, and I said, how do you know what you forgot? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. And the look on his face was like, gosh, I wish I hadn't asked. I wish I hadn't said what I just said. (laughs) But we know for a fact, and this is taught at the FBI National Academy about critical incident amnesia, that Give people three sleep cycles. That has gotten translated to 72 hours, but you might not. I bet you've been in events 
that you didn't sleep for 24 hours. No. <laughs> Maybe 36 hours. You, you couldn't sleep. Adrenaline pumping, whatever's going on, you couldn't get it out of your head. So, and as a, I'm also a forensic hypnotist. I don't know if I've talked about that on the podcast or not. I've actually worked with law enforcement to solve cold cases and eyewitness recall and stuff. And it's interesting. The brain is a very complex thing, as we have all learned. And, but when you look at it as two halves, the subconscious is like the hard drive on your computer. Records everything. I could regress you back as old as you are to your first day of school. And you would tell me what you had for breakfast, what you wore, what your teacher had on. Wow. Maybe we should do that on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we'll hypnotize Next week. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll hypnotize Lovejoy next yeah, week go. when he comes up. Um, if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil, you'd write your name the same way you would have written your name. Wow. The first day of school. It, so it records everything. And unless there's trauma, the information's there. But... It captures information 10 times faster than the conscious brain does. This is why firearms is so important for you guys. Because in a shooting situation, you talk to anybody and they didn't have time to assess. You know, is that a Glock? Is it a SIG? Is it a 9? Is it a 45? Threat response. Threat response. And I think we talked about in last week's podcast, um, you know, or somebody was, maybe somebody set him off. They were talking about how they drill on the range. Y'all drill things. And you're like, please, do we really have to do it again? Muscle memory. Right. And so it takes a while for the conscious and subconscious to link up. And Dave Grossman and Bruce Siddle did a study. Uh, it's been a few years back. And they said in the study, some memory never comes back. But how many times have you had eyewitnesses on a situation and you thought they must have witnessed two different crimes? Happens a lot in wrecks, and I remember one recently. We literally had five different witness reports, and so it's yes. like I, I don't even know what to do here. <laughs> well, and it's funny because one will tell you he was Asian, five four, and had on a yellow shirt. Somebody else will say no, he he was Caucasian and he was six three and had on a purple shirt. What they're telling you is the last thing their brain really processed before the critical incident, and y'all aren't exempt from that kind of thing. This is why I don't worry as much about snipers in situations where SWAT teams sit up because the snipers have preparation time. It's basically someone gets in the crosshairs or given the green light and they pull the trigger. It isn't a boom, it's in your face. Stop a car, there's a gun. Um, the brain processes this stuff differently. And again, depending on where the garbage is in your garbage can. Um, you know, looking back at your garbage can, we know that the event with your friend who was not a police officer and her murder took up a lot in your garbage can. Right. You had everything from guilt of I'm a cop. I should have been able to do something about this to wanting to be responsible for her kids, her boys that were how old at the time? Mm, late teens, early twenties. So not really grown, but almost grown. Right. And then you start compounding that with other things. You know, what are some other critical incidents that, that you've seen, whether they were debriefed or not? And that, that's another issue. Who decides what gets debriefed? Well, before I answer that, I want to ask you, um, critic, a debriefing, I know we've talked about it before, mm -hmm. and your frustration and <laughs> how some departments are doing it across the country. Yes. But there's a difference between a debriefing and a... Diffusing. Okay. Okay. 
Um, and again, depending on which model you're looking at, but the ICISF model that I was trained under initially, a diffusing is five phases. Okay. A debriefing is seven phases, same first five phases with two additional, which is nothing but symptomology and teaching what you can do about the symptoms. So my attitude is, is why would I pull a group of law enforcement officers together to do a diffusing and then call them back in whatever time frame and ask them again? How many times y'all going to want to sit around and have me ask you, so how did that make you feel? Right. <laughs> why not just do it and do it in a reasonable time after you've let people go home, talk to their families, because I feel like we leave families out when we try to do this stuff too fast. But, you know, here I'm called out with one of our sheriff's departments when they have shootings. I go on scene. I meet with the deputies. And all I do at that point, they're not processing information. It's a face. Here's my name and number. Anything you experience in the next 30 days is perfectly normal. Uh, one of them I went out on one of the deputies um, I asked, I said, have you called your wife? And he said, yes, but she's a little freaked. And I said, will she talk to me? And he said, let's call her. And I called and I told her who I was. And I said, I'm looking at your husband. He's fine. If I think you need to come out here, I will come get you personally and bring you out. And she said that made all the difference in the world. Because wives know y'all might kind of blow a little bit of smoke that everything's good and you've got an arm missing <laughs> but I'm fine I'm good and and so it's just beneficial to be able to look at somebody and go if you don't sleep tonight don't worry about it but here's my number call me if you need me do you remember that time when I sent a picture of my bloody head to my wife at the time and said I'm headed to the ER but I'm fine yes yeah that was a mistake. Don't do that. Yeah, that wasn't a good plan. You've also talked about when you talk about the um, not just shootings, but any critical incident. I think I've heard you say in Alabama, they don't do their department. Does that make sense? Right. They don't do in-house peer support. At least our our team does. Under the Shill has a team in Alabama that we get called out on the majority of stuff. And we don't even let them go into the same county where they work because we've got people trained all over the state from one end to the other, because it's easier for an officer to talk to an officer, but if, or a deputy or a trooper, but if it's somebody you work with or could be your supervisor next month, you tend to kind of suck things up a little bit. But when you can look at someone and you know, they're not going to be your supervisor next week, then it's easier to talk to them. So and I don't really understand the objection to that. You know, I've been trying out here to get this to be a valley-wide team. Um, I don't care if it's AZ Cops wants to run the team, APA wants to run the team. But at least that way, you know, Mesa could respond to Phoenix or Mesa and, and Chandler and Gilbert people could respond to Phoenix. Phoenix can respond wherever. Um, because I do the debriefings for Buckeye PD. And I always take Phoenix people with me. Once you're trained, you'll be going. Um, I always take people from this side over there. And it's funny because when they walk in and the officers look at them and go, wow, Phoenix is here to help us. And they're volunteering their time. It's all voluntary. There's no money in this. This isn't Susan trying to make money for Under the Shield because there's no money in it any, in, in any form anyway. People volunteer to do this, to help out. 
So let me ask you another question. For an incident, whatever the critical incident might be, and we can run a whole slew of things in that that phrase, will an officer know shortly after the incident that they're going to have what I'll refer to as issues from the incident? Some can. Some may not come up for a long time. Depends on what the garbage is in their garbage can. Depends on what their resources are. Do they have a good support system at home? Um, I find people with military backgrounds that can play positive or negative, depending on, again, their military experience. Do they have stuff in their garbage can they haven't processed from their deployments? Um, you know, it, it varies person to person, but what's interesting is most officers, and this is why I don't really like sergeants or lieutenants on the scene to make the determination of whether somebody should be debriefed. Because if the sergeant walks up to them, do you think, how many cops do you know? When you were a sergeant, how many did you know that if you'd walked up and said, you okay with this, they're going to go, no, I'm falling apart. My world is coming to an end. None. <laughs> they're not going to. They're going to say, I'm fine. I'm good, boss. Yeah. And inside they're thinking, oh, this isn't good. The majority of the time for me is it seems like it's a checkbox mm-hmm. thing. And when mm-hmm. I say checkbox, it's if you hit this type of incident, then we need to pull in the CISM team and we right. need to do a debriefing and we need to, is that how most departments are? It is. And that's what keeps the concept that the only thing that's really a critical incident is where you have an officer involved shooting or a line of duty death. But when you start looking at, you know, it's like I have departments in Alabama that call me and go, Susan, here's what we've got. What do you think? And here are my first questions. Has the officer been involved in anything else major? Um, if it's something that involves children, does he have kids of that age? Um, is he going through a divorce or she, um, is the person experiencing anything else that you know of out, you know, maybe family members died recently. I want to know what else is going on in their world before I make that determination, because you guys don't live in a bubble and you don't operate in a bubble. You know, a lot of professions do, you know, lawyers, what they do at work doesn't come home. And what happens at home doesn't necessarily impact work either. But here, if an officer's kid gets diagnosed with cancer, but he's working because that pays the bills, but that's all he's, I mean, think about where his brain is or her brain. But they have a job to do. And so it's really important to know what else is happening with that person. Okay. And sometimes the sergeant won't know. I, you know, I don't know when you were a sergeant because you were kind of a jerk, I thought. But anyway, um, <laughs> are you, are you going to argue with to, me? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How well did you know your people? Uh, that was probably part of the problem, too well. And I took on a lot of their issues that they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. But they would talk to you about personal things that were happening yeah. if they're going through divorce or whatever. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, that's a good supervisor. You know, too many I hear go, oh, that's personal. I don't even know that stuff, Susan. And you know what I tell them? Then give me their number and let me call them and talk to them. And then I can make a, a pretty good assessment as to whether that person, because a lot of times they're going to tell me stuff they're not going to tell y'all. And this is where I kind of get frustrated with management because y'all think y'all know everything about everything. <laughs> Let's get some mental health people in to, to teach people in a supervisory role what to look for. And if you're not comfortable asking those questions, 
call me. I'll ask those questions. You know me. I'll go crawl in a car with somebody. Well, it goes the same way with the spouse or the significant other at home, right? Yes. And I know we had a spouse that took issue with me using the word training. And I have had a conversation with her since then. Um, and I think she understands. I would hope I've actually invited her to be on the show. And I hope she will be at some point. Um, you know, we're not talking about training spouses like they're dogs and don't have a brain. I'm talking about educating them on the things that can happen in this lifestyle. You know, we don't just give officers a badge and a gun and go, go figure it out. <laughs> Here, Good luck to you. Um, there's your patrol car. Here's how you turn the lights and sirens on. We train you what you can do, what you can't do. Try to train you somewhat what you might can expect from this lifestyle. But the spouses need to because they're the first line of defense. Who do you think saw your issues first? My wife. Absolutely. But she didn't know what to do or who to call. Who do they typically call if they don't know? I don't know. The police department. Mm, Oh, yes. You know, (laughs) maybe the sergeant can explain to me or the lieutenant can explain to me. And I met him once, you know, six months ago. And... They'll call and, and say, and then what position does that put you in as a sergeant? Uh, then you, <laughs> you got to start you asking some questions. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I remember a case one time where a department called me in and said that they had reason to believe the officer was suicidal because the wife got a note. I understand where the wife was coming from. I read the note. If I'd read it and not had any background, I'd have thought the same thing. But he wasn't suicidal. He was in a bad place, but he wasn't thinking about killing himself. And it got blown way out of proportion. And fortunately, at that time, the chief was someone who supported what I do. And he said, Susan, handle it the way you need to handle it. And I gave the officer two choices. I said, you can, I said, you have two choices. And he said, what? And I said, you can come stay in my house, in my guest room. And can you believe he looked at me and said, what's my other choice? I said, that's right, hurt, the, hurt my feelings. <laughs> and what I did was I put, he, he worked graves for forever, and I put him in the hospital under sleep deprivation. And they gave him something, I think it was the equivalent of a triple dose of Benadryl. He slept like 33 hours. They called me. I went and checked him out and took him home. Life was good. Department had a checkbox, and nobody is thinks anything about an officer who's sleep deprived because all of you are sleep deprived. So on the critical incident that you spoke of and that let's take it back to that uh, deputy whose wife you got on the phone with, Mm -hmm. what might she see at home if the officer is struggling with the critical incident? Well, they're certainly going to know if they're not sleeping as well. And one thing I, I, I do try to educate spouses about, and I've had several in here this week. Um, Law enforcement officers after critical incidents, and mine did this too. Uh, Mine did this just from the cumulative of the job. But you tend to jerk in your sleep, or you'll toss and turn a lot. And if that, you know, again, if you've been in a shooting major event, and that goes on off and on for 30 days, I'm not going to be concerned. But if it continues to go on, then we know, you're not getting good, healthy REM and Delta sleep. That can lead to the increase in the irritability. This is the early warnings of the garbage can filling up. You're cynical. Your attitude sucks. You're irritable. 
Um, families start saying things like, you're not as much fun as you used to be. Did you ever hear that? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and see, and if families don't understand that carrying a gun off duty is normal, they can start to think you're acting paranoid. And by probably by general population standards, y'all are a paranoid profession. But to me, that just means you're prepared. Right. Because you're thinking, what if? Well, you know, better to, to be prepared and, and not need it than to need it and not have it. And I tell these spouses, you wouldn't complain if your husband was a doctor and always carried his medical bag. That wouldn't be anything anything would think about. This is just a tool of the trade. They'll see things like maybe increase in alcohol, um, increase in time on the computer and video games, um, isolating away from friends, family. Departments can see things like guys that usually come in spit shine looking great, suddenly look like they've slept in their uniforms. Um, a lot of it is is visual things. But families are going to see the, obviously, the drinking too much, those kinds of things. Um, spending time, actually spending more time at work, taking on a whole lot of extra jobs can be an indication, too. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff to look at from a financial standpoint. Are they spending money? Have they picked up gambling? I know in some parts of the country, gambling's a big addiction. I haven't seen that in 20 years. But I understand Chicago, that's a big problem hmm. with law enforcement. Have you ever heard of that here with no. anybody? No. I, I, you know, we've got casinos, you know, everywhere you turn. But it doesn't seem to be an issue. Yeah, and I've seen it in the inability to get the small task done. Yes. You know, the report writing, the... Yes. All the other stuff that we have to do. Yeah, you start... You, and, and you start to see a deterioration in someone's... Um, you know, they've been a really good cop and it drives me crazy when I hear supervisors say, you know, all of a sudden, yeah, he sucks at his job. You think something might be going on? Oh, I don't know. That's his problem. It's not my problem. And I go, well, okay. <laughs> Cause it's going to become your problem. Right. <laughs> and you know, get, get involved early. This is one of the things I was talking to one of the associations I work with here. I know that they were at a problem and an officer who'd been a great officer, started having what they perceived to be excessive use of force hadn't been a problem and you know just the nicest guy but nobody did anything step in ask questions you know mark uh that teaches with me that's retired from phoenix <laughs> after his shooting he was racing to every hot call because he wanted to get there first and keep somebody else from having to go through what he'd been through and when it all came to light, his supervisor even said, yeah, one day you passed me going 100. Mark said, why didn't you ask me what was going on? And he goes, well, I just figured you'd eventually get over it. What? <laughs> and see, I, I know you've discussed it before, but part of the problem is the rotation the yes. that we do. And it's so easy for that supervisor to, hey, in another two months, that'll be somebody else's problem. Absolutely. You know, and just passed that person off seen it for 18 years and you know one thing i'm like when you would change when you were a sergeant and you would change shifts whatever would you talk to the sergeant that had the people before you sometimes 
Because I, you know, and I, that can that can be a double edged sword too. That's why it's sometimes <laughs> depending on who that sergeant is, because he may not like anybody. Right. Um, but you know, if there are issues and things, I would hope people would at least have those conversations. But was there ever a reason? I never understood. Uh, mainly, I guess I'm because I, I am who I am, and I've never been a supervisor in a police department, and that's probably a good thing for most people. Um, it's a good thing I was never a cop, but. Is there some danger in getting to know your people and finding out what's going on in their lives? Is there some policy or obligation that now all of a sudden I've asked stuff I wish I hadn't asked because now I got to go tell somebody? No, you need to you need to be asking that. So when I would get the new team, I would ask them their one year goals, their five year goals, and then I would ask about their family. You know, mm-hmm. are you married? Do you have kids? And, you know, their birth dates, you know, stuff like that. So when you occasionally, once you know this stuff and you say, hey, how's your son Mark doing? Right. You know, then it means something to the officer. Sure. You know, that also opens up the two-way street thing. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the stuff that I struggled with, especially during the time when my garbage can was full. So when my officers were struggling and have seen plenty of tears shed, then that's what I would take home. Yep. And due to my garbage can being so full that it was tough. And see, that was a lesson I had to learn early on because I did the same thing. I took on every problem every cop would come to me with. I'd lie awake at night and how can I fix this kind of thing. And I hit that brick wall and I realized I had to, if I was going to continue to do this and be successful, I had to take a different approach to it. And I think that's also what separates our stress coaches Again, one of the things we're very proud of it under the shield from the license world, the license world has very strict guidelines and ethics. They can't be friends with their clients. We can just like, and that's why we call it coaching. Um, I mean, you've worked with kids, you've been a coach at some level in softball and other things, and you got to know their families. You knew them, you'd go to their house for dinner and that's where we are. We can be friends with our clients and know their families and know their dog or cat or grandmother or whoever it is, because I can't just work with people in that little vacuum. And I'm, you know, there are some counselors and again, this is their choice. They don't want to work with both spouses. I can't fix a situation in this industry, lawyer, doctor, garbage man, whatever it may be. But because this lifestyle and how the families are impacted, I need to work with both. Because, I mean, I've had a wife tell me she doesn't want to know anything about her husband's job. Wow. Yeah. And I go, ooh, probably not going to work too well. And it doesn't. And it's not going to. And I go, then, why are you even married? Because the reality is, is this stuff impacts him tremendously. And it, it can be a real barrier. Spouses don't have to know the blood and the guts. They don't want to. Personally, I would want to. Um, but they need to know enough to understand how their other half is being affected. Well, I kind of feel like that's the same way with the stress coaches. I need to know all aspects so I know what all's going on in the garbage can. Because if one part is causing more of a problem for the other, then I need to be able to try to help fix that. And again, that's what separates us. And it doesn't mean, again, that it's eliminating the license world. It's not. We serve a different, different place. You know, it's like the psychologist that I refer everybody to that you know. He has his thing. 
He does his thing. And he knows he doesn't have to do more than that because he knows his people are coming here and I'm doing the rest of it in three and four hour sessions, not 50 minutes and move to the next one, which I think is beneficial. Like I was telling you the other day, I had a client in here that suddenly remembered something from 1999 that was of great impact to how he was processing everything. And it only happened because he was here for well over three hours talking. And as we talked, you could see things coming to light he hadn't thought about in a long time. Three hours? So you don't do 50-minute sessions? No. Hmm. Unless the officer wants to walk out, I don't lock my door. Right. <laughs> but it's always funny because they'll come in and spend four hours. And then they'll come in the next time. They're like, I am not going to be here four hours. Okay. And they're here six. <laughs> I go, you're right. You weren't here four. You were here six. Damn it, Susan. <laughs> I don't make you sit here. (laughs) So my next question is, I remember a, um, another wreck. We had a bad wreck on top of the one one freeway Mm -hmm. and second one on scene. And I went up to the woman who was sitting on the asphalt in between this three vehicle accident. What had happened was a young woman had broken down her vehicle broken down. And the two men who were middle-aged men, probably fifties, roughly uh, got out to push the young female, then got hit by a drunk driver while they were pushing. Oh, wow. So this gentleman uh, was missing part of his leg. Wow. And I asked the woman, is he talking to you? Mm-hmm. And still, I could tell you what she was wearing. I could yep. tell you everything about it. And her reply was, he was. So I, I left that scene. Uh, not too proud to say that I cried after I left that scene. It sure. was a pretty big scene. My question for you is once you have a critical incident, like something like that, mm-hmm. here, here's a big wreck scene. If you go to something else similar six months later, could or do the officers experience flashbacks or is it going to make the second one worse than the first one because they've experienced. I know most departments have checklists. You know, you get into so many critical incidents that it automatically triggers something. I don't know what that is offhand. Right. You know. You know, and again, it depends on how the first one's handled. If that first one is dealt with properly and whether it needs to be debriefed, um, which something like that, I I personally would say at least it needs a one-on-one. I don't know that every officer there needs to talk about their role in the event because none of you were there when the actual drunk driver hit the people. Um, but from a one-on-one standpoint, I think people should be checked on. <coughs> if it's not, and they strict, you know, and, and this is where officers saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, see this stuff all the time. Um, that's them taking that trash compactor and, cramming it down in their garbage can then when they go to one six months six years later and have a reaction to it they overreact to it because they don't realize it's the buildup of everything else and then they start to think there's something wrong with them like the officer I talk about when I first started this company and he said I don't cry about dead babies and trash cans and mutilated bodies and horrible stuff but then he falls completely apart when he sees a stray dog get run over. And he thinks he's losing it. And his words were, I'm a sick son of a bitch. No sicker than you were when you started this job. You just haven't dealt with everything. And so we had to dig in that garbage can and talk about 
and he calls it verbally vomiting because that stuff stays in there. If you haven't, you know, you had some pretty good overall ways of dealing with the stress of your job. You coached softball, you were in martial arts, right? Um, You know, so you had some things. Think about if you didn't have any of that stuff where you would have been. Maybe how much faster stuff would have overflowed. And some guys don't have anything. They don't have families. They don't have extra curricular things that they do. And those people I worry about. But it's pretty simple to solve it. So when we talk about several uh, podcasts ago, we had talked about anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so the adrenaline dump that comes along with anxiety. So after the critical incident, you had mentioned that they're going to have the adrenaline dump from the actual incident. Sure. Is it the same as anxiety adrenaline dump? Um, It it can be. Um, Because again, anxiety comes from thoughts that activate fear that create adrenaline. And a lot of it is the problem with the anxiety is, is your fear is coming from things you can't really fight or flee. Usually on scene, you can jump in and get involved and help something, solve something, fix something. Um, And again, some of that will cause an adrenaline dump. Some of it won't. And I was telling someone the other day that works midnights and I said, you know, if you have those late in the shift adrenaline rushes that turn out to be nothing and you don't have four to six hours between in that happening and going to bed, then you need to run sprints, punch and kick a bag, do something at the end of your shift. Don't, don't just exercise. Don't just lift weights. You've got to do something that mimics fight or flight to get rid of that adrenaline. And even for people with anxiety, uh, I remember one time um, teaching at a trooper academy and right in the middle of me teaching new recruits, secretary came running in and said, we need you in the parking lot. And I went out and one of the troopers that's an instructor there was literally pacing like a caged animal back and forth. Something had set him off in his office. He took, I don't know why he had this in his office, but some kind of a spear and he put it through the TV. And huh. yeah, it was quite interesting. And you can imagine all the new recruits. You know, they're all out there like, oh, you know, what's going on? And and it's August and I'm pacing with him and I'm in a suit and I'm thinking I'm going to die a heat stroke right here. And I grabbed another trooper and I said, take him to the gym. I want him punching and kicking a bag. I want him running sprints. You time him. And they came back in a few minutes and said, man, he crashed. That's what I needed yep. him to do. They'd take him home. Yep. <laughs> and so I don't know what created it. I don't remember. I'm old and happened more than 24 hours ago. Um, but something on television set him off. Huh. And he just took that thing and put it right through the screen. Wow. Well, that was effective. <laughs> you know what I like about this podcast is I can ask questions and you have no idea what question I'm getting ready to ask. Not a clue. Here's the next one. Oh, geez. Here we go. Uh, it's been fun. It's been a good podcast today. Yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Well, I think it's something that needs to be discussed, and I've, I've heard you touch on it before, but I remember a scene, a floater in the backyard, a mm-hmm. person had died in the pool. And the officers were standing out front. I was a supervisor at this time, and the jokes happened. Oh, yeah. And I told them, listen, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Take it into the house. You see everybody that's standing out here. Um, can you explain? Also, I want to say that Tim from work rode with, or Tim from church rode with me. 
has nothing to do with law enforcement whatsoever. <laughs> and some of these comments like that would be happening on some of these major scenes. Sure. And he's like, you know, what's that all about? Can you explain <laughs> the sick, sick humor? <laughs> humor. <laughs> sick humor is actually probably one of the most useful tools that y'all have. The sad part today is we have body cam. And I've always said, every time I've taught about this, I tell them, it's a great thing to use. Just don't do it in front of the media or the victim's family because it'll get you in trouble every time. And it's not appropriate. Um, but there are actually studies that show when you use sick humor, the body sends a message to the brain, this has no power over me. So that's why it is a very useful tool. I remember being on a call. Uh, actually, I was sitting in a chief's office and um, he gets a call that there's been a wreck between a vehicle and a garbage truck. And they're both coming downhill into a valley and the guy in the car swerved into the lane of the dump truck or the garbage truck. And he had his window down, the driver's window down, and he had his arm out. And so we get in the car and we go over to the scene and the chief comes up to me at one point and uses some sick humor about the individual's hand that was lying in the road. To which I, of course, laughed because I understood where it was coming from. It was a pretty gruesome scene. And I didn't know a whole lot about sick humor at that time other than I felt like it was a useful tool. And that was one of the reasons we started doing a lot of research at Under the Shield on it. And when we found this, it just made sense because, again, laughter heals a lot of things. And so I encourage it. The problem we have now is, again, body cams and that kind of stuff makes it a little more difficult but there are certain things we never use sick humor would never be appropriate. That was my next question. <laughs> and that's with children. And that's the stuff we hear in this office that fills up a lot of people's garbage cans. It's not unusual for officers to call me and say, you know, Susan, I get why Joe, Bob, whoever is struggling with this. He's got five kids. I don't have kids. Why is this impacting me? Because again, y'all are problem solvers. That's your whole job description. But we forget to tell you you're not going to solve everybody's problems. And we certainly don't teach you how to solve your own problems. But these ki things with kids fill up your garbage can. Things with animals would affect me. And I'm not a PETA person. I'm not one of those. But I hate to see the commercials with the animals suffering cold and shivering. And I have to, I have to leave the room or change the channel. Because, again, my kids are grown. But my dog is my child. And so I can equate it back to that. And, and I'm finding a lot of older officers have the same thing because I'll talk about that in class and they'll come up and go, you know, damn you, Susan. And they'll start crying going, you start talking about the animal commercials and, and it impacts them. So they're thing, you know, and some people probably really, really old people that someone has taken advantage of them. You probably also feel bad about. Uh, but again, we, you know, we kind of can dismiss those things because they've lived their life and, but children are just a whole nother subject. There's never a time. I actually had somebody in a class one time tell me that he had used sick humor with something with a child. And I wish you could have seen the reaction of the other officers in that classroom. It did not go well for him hmm. because that just is not something. And yet then he wanted to get really angry with me because I made a joke about officer shootings. I don't even remember what it was. Mark was there. It was something Mark and I were joking about. And he took great offense to that. But I thought, but you're a man that can joke about something happening to a child. 
Yeah, that's somebody I, I have great concerns over. Okay. That's the only time I've ever heard it. What are your office hours? <laughs> You're such a smart ass. Because <laughs> you know There's the a answer. point to the, you know the my to question. That, you know the answer to that question. 24-7-365. So we had an incident recently, car accident involved fire in the car accident. Um, two of us arrived at your house roughly house where your office is mm-hmm. roughly 10 p.m. Probably close to 10. Yeah, between uh, 9.30 10, somewhere in there. So clearly your office hours are at least until 10. It's until it, somebody doesn't need me. <laughs> so in this session, which is in the same room that we're sitting in right now, uh, myself and my buddy sat on the couch that I'm sitting on right now, and we called um, a firefighter yes. friend that we knew. And during that conversation, he explained some of the symptoms that were being witnessed by the the main officer that was involved. Because he was struggling. Struggling with it. And it had had to do with a head injury. Yes. Which made the officer feel a little bit, is it wrong to say better? No, it answers. Information's power. Right. And again, because you're problem solvers, his struggle was... He couldn't get the person out of the vehicle, even though he tried. But it was because of what the firefighter explained about the head trauma that made it really impossible. Uh, I don't know if that's what the firefighter said, but pretty close to it, that it would make it impossible for you to get the person out. And even if you had, there's nothing that you could have done for him. You know, it, there's so many times, and that's a lot of times what a critical incident debrief, the purpose of it is, put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Because if you don't, your brain will try to plug it in. And a lot of times it's bad information. And so that's why it's important to have everybody on the scene that is somewhat at the same level of exposure, including dispatch, if the call originated in dispatch. Because they have bits and pieces. I know I did, my team did one in Alabama where four officers were ambushed. They were met with AK-47 rounds serving a misdemeanor warrant early in the morning. And one officer made it back to his car. The others were killed. And in the debriefing, we'll say the guy sitting next to me, his name was Joe. And Joe started saying, I, you know, what was your role in this? And he started saying he was one of the first on scene. He started calling, shots fired, whatever. And dispatch, the three of them started looking funny at each other and making faces. And I'm like, what, you know? And so when he finished, I looked at dispatch. I said, all right, what's all this? And they said, well, we don't mean to contradict him, but Joe, you never got on the radio. Bob over here got on the radio and called shots fired. And Bob's looking around like, I did what? (laughs) He didn't realize he had gotten it. This is what happens when autopilot kicks in. And it's probably that Joe tried to get on the radio. Bob was already on the radio talking and couldn't get on, but he thought he had. So when people have wrong information, then it doesn't sit well in the subconscious. The subconscious has it all. It doesn't sit well. And you got to be able to put all of it together. So since this officer that was with you, because you arrived Second. second, and so this officer really was dealing with the critical incident by himself, he needed information to help him go, okay, I did do everything I could possibly have done. This is why I couldn't do it. And it's funny because you asked that night, 
you asked about his senses, yes, which triggered something with me. And here I'm on the scene of a car fire, and I never smelled smoke. Because as going to the scene, my whole whole thing is as a seasoned officer that was already on scene, mm-hmm. and just hearing just that little bit of voice inflection, it's like I've got to get to him yep. type of thing. And so my role was, hey, let's get this shut down. Let's do, you know, autopilot kicks in. We've got to do steps A through Z, you know, type of thing. And funny that you just mentioned it. There was no zero sick humor on that scene. Mm -hmm. There was afterwards. Yeah. Because when you even called me and told me about it, it was the first time I'd ever heard the terminology you used about the kind of call it was. Right. And, and, and usually when I hear that, that's when I know people are going to be okay. Um, but smell is your strongest psychological sense in triggering any kind of flashback. It's usually going to come from smell because that for whatever reason seems to send, send messages all over the place. Way more than sight, sound, taste, touch. And I know for one of our team members that went to New York with me, post 9-11, we went down in the pit. It was the first time we were taken down in the pit. And they were still working. There was actually, things were still smoldering and burning, actually. That went on a lot longer than people realized. And they found, um, I believe it's one of the firefighters, and they needed a chaplain. And we had a chaplain with us. And he went and did last rites, administered last rites. And it was, I don't know how many years, but several years later, he was in the dentist office having a tooth drilled. And that smell triggered him right back Mm. to ground zero. Because those were very unique smells. Those are things I probably won't smell again. I went to the landfill. That's different. I only went there once. I said I can't go back again because of the methane gas, their smells in a garbage dump, which is what it was, that I could smell again, and I wasn't going there again. But the pit, you can take me down there every day, all day long during the digging. But then let the tornadoes go through and destroy out parts of Alabama. And now if I go back there and someone's cutting grass or burning pine needles or something on those lines, I can go right back to that horrible scene of those tornadoes because those are common smells in the South. It's not out here. It's pretty interesting that God put me out here because that was why I moved here just a few months after those tornadoes. And it's interesting. I wind up in a place where I don't have the grass and the trees and the stuff that I would normally smell back there. But when I go home, wow, it, it can trigger it right off. It's funny. Cause after that scene, we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, the, the accident, probably less than two weeks later, we were on another bad collision. No one died in that collision. But I used sick humor to the stepfather who was walking up. He had roughly a 20-year-old daughter that was involved. And it was a serious accident, rollover, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he objected to my use of sick humor. <laughs> so within 10 minutes, I went and had a conversation with him to say, mm-hmm. listen, I'm sorry here's why I did what I did. Mm-hmm. And three quarters of us were just on this wreck two weeks ago. You know, so it's always completing the circle. That's a sure. phrase I like to do to go back. He happened to be law enforcement or something related to law enforcement. Oh, you're kidding. And he said, I get it. Good. 
So it's these scenes that trigger. I mean, in sure. 18 years, obviously been on quite a few scenes and seen quite a few deaths and, you know, stuff like that. And it's, you, you need somebody like yourself to be able to, you know, I can't tell you the last time I had a session with you. Maybe, maybe that. It's because you have them all the time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but we speak every day. Yeah. So you kind of know what's going on. Well, and you're you're wanting and you're going to be good at this. this. This is why I want you to be one of the stress coaches. And because you get it. You're not in it to be on the inside knowing all the information. So you can run around and go, well, I know all about what happened. Um, it isn't about that. It's about helping other people. Because you've been in that place where you couldn't dig yourself out by yourself. And so you're going to be able to do that for somebody else. That's what so, it's all about. And so how does Under the Shield for the people that are listening, I know that you, pre-COVID, you would yeah. teach classes to a supervisor's class and a family uh, Spouse's, spouse's class. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know because I have sent my friends to you mm-hmm. that don't have contracts with the union. So you see people for free all the for time for the love of the job. Yes. How does under the shield and do you get your uh, financially? How do you survive the funding? Um, you know, we say we're a 501c3 <laughs> for whatever that's worth. <laughs> because I can tell you now donations are the absolute minimal part of what runs this business um, and affords us this opportunity. It's the few contracts with the associations or unions that really pays the bills. I, I don't get a salary, especially this year. Um, training helped kind of set the balance there um, so that I could pay myself occasionally something um and occasionally some other instructors that have taught with me like mark because he would take time off from work and co- and you know and usually the expenses are covered but you know i'd say probably 95 percent of what we do at under the shield is completely free nobody gets paid for it and i know that's hard for people to believe but there are some of us dumb enough to work for nothing and again i'm 61 years old i've lived in the big house with the pool driven the mercedes all that stuff and was miserable. It, it, you know, you hit a point in your life where you go, this isn't about, um, I, there's a good video that I show and they talk about F Lee Bailey talks about, you know, there comes a point where you're not, um, counting dollars and that kind of stuff. You're counting the lives that you've impacted. That's what's important. I is, know. I know we've talked about it recently, mm-hmm. exactly that. And the uptick, you know, probably due to COVID, due to the election and due to the environment, everything. So how do, did it take you some years before you were able to sleep at night with everything that you hear? It did. When I hit that brick wall early on and I said, I've either got to give this up or I've got to find a better way to do it and survive it. Um, then I began to realize I have to see this. I don't have to pick up people's garbage, what they dump in here. I don't have to pick up. People are always telling you I need to write a book. I have forgotten more than I can remember. And it's really funny because I do have, I've been in places where departments will come up and go, yeah, you know, years ago you helped us with such and such. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't have any doubt that it did happen, but I don't have to retain the information because I don't keep notes. I don't keep records. 
you know, and I actually had somebody question me one time with a, it was actually a state trooper here in Arizona, and he was a captain or somebody, and he looked at me as a smart ass and said, um, well, how do you know people are getting better when they come to you if you don't keep notes? <laughs> I started laughing. I looked at him. And I said, because they come back. And he goes, what? And I said, I deal with what walks through the door. Today might be marriage issues. Next week might be uh, something he saw on the job. The next week might be something else. You know, I'm just not one of these people that, you know, will tell me about how long your mother breastfed you and let's talk about your relationship with your siblings and whatever. That stuff comes up, it comes up. But I deal with what walks through the door. I don't have to have notes to know what he did last week. If it's the same problem, he's coming in. And if he's cut, no, you and I both know, no cop would come in here if I didn't help him the week before. They'd never come back. Nope. At all. So my last question. You ready? Uh-oh. You work with dozens and dozens and dozens of departments across the nation. Yes. How could departments do it better related to critical incidents? Well, the first step would be to let someone come in and educate them about just basics. Train your supervisors. But that involves ego. It does. It, it involves saying, gosh, I might not know everything there is to know about everything. And maybe we need to open the door. But it's like you talked about when on your episode with us or um, Badge Boys. You talked about how your lieutenant and command staff got together to talk about what did they miss? Well, guys, if you're brain surgeons and you know, you wouldn't have missed it. <laughs> so why don't you bring somebody in who might know what to look for to teach your people how to look for it and then what they can do with it when they recognize it. Don't try to fix it. And, you know, I tell supervisors all the time, if you think somebody that you're supervising might be suicidal and you're not comfortable asking because of the position Put you in. Call me. I'll ask. I'll get in the car with them and ask them and talk to them. But it starts by recognizing that this is a new day, a different industry, different stuff's happening. It's not the same as it was when a lot of these chiefs and sheriffs were on the road 25, 30 years ago. Um, it's a different generation and type. And what's funny is your generation will talk about the new generation. And say, oh, their work ethic just isn't what it should be or whatever. What's funny is I used to have a video that was actually on VHS. So we can't play it because nobody's got a VHS player anymore. Um, but it actually was guys talking about your generation. And guess what they're saying? <laughs> the same stuff you're saying wow. about the next generation. Every generation in this is different. And we have to learn to acclimate. And we can't wait till the suicides are up. We can't wait for bad things to happen. Let's get, let's be proactive on this stuff. Head this stuff off. You know, one of the best things they can do is the three-tiered approach we've talked about. Peer support is not the end-all be-all. Licensed mental health is not the end-all be-all. We've had these things. Things are getting worse, not better. Something's missing. We believe, as some do, that it's that stress coaching com uh, component. Because we can ask and say things and do things and provide information and education and teaching and stuff that these other two groups can't do. Why not try it? What have you got to lose is right. always my thing. Yep. It's not a lifetime contract. If it doesn't work, okay, we'll try something else. But they've got to open their minds and get out of their own way 
and stop thinking that there's some sign of weakness if they don't ask for help in figuring the stuff out. One more question I like. Uh Uh-oh. What has, or is it different impact? What has more impact, the teachings or the individual on your couch sessions? Teachings by far. Because if they haven't been in a training, basically then I have to spend time teaching them what they could get in an eight-hour training. You know, I say all the time, I've said this with the military, put a thousand veterans in a stadium out here that's not being utilized. I can give probably 85% of them the majority of what they need. And then guess what? The rest of them, now it clears out the calendars at the VA for the people that really need more stuff. And that's why I work so well with the psychologist here, because again, his sessions don't run some of them now are only running 15 20 minutes because he has one specific thing he's doing but he understands i'm in here digging in their garbage can if it creates an issue he needs to deal with he deals with it that's why we work so well together this is what i wish the rest of the license world would understand it's not about taking their place it's about adding something that can make their job a whole lot easier and it could certainly cut back on some of the individual stuff that goes on in here and leave the, the door open for the more serious stuff if we could do more training. Because we have no limit on how many we train. Well, it has all to do with making better quality life for it's all men and women in this profession. And we charge and sometimes so saving little. lives. And we charge so little in comparison. So it's not, it can't be about money because we work with departments about that. So I hope this has been educational for everyone. This is um, one of the things that we really want to be able to do on occasion. We are going to have a guest next week. Um, We're going to have Sergeant Tom Lovejoy that Chris and I both know, who's an absolute hoot. He's president of one of the associations out here, and he'll be with us next week. And then we have um, another officer that's going to be joining us the next week. And so we hope that this has been beneficial to you. Please remember at Under the Shield, if we can do anything for you, give us a call. Numbers will be posted. Everything's there. And we just appreciate you a lot, Chris. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Glad to have you here. And if you have topics you want us to cover, please let us know. You can leave those notes for us or email us or whatever. We appreciate your sacrifices and all that you're doing. Stay safe. Stay healthy. God bless. And we love you.